Well, friends, this is our third session of the fourth chapter of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, and we're walking through the topic here that we're going to begin today, and I'm going to finish it uh, in our next, uh, our next session, is, is my desire. And we're going to talk about the creation of man and man being made in the image of God. And we're going to spend most of our time considering this topic of man being made in the image of God. What exactly does that mean? Because it is a theme that we see mentioned throughout the scriptures. And it's very important that we understand this because it's a very foundational aspect about humanity. It was damaged in the fall, and it's something that the Lord is working within us even now to conform us to the image of Christ Jesus. And being made in the image of God is something that is distinct about humanity and is not distinct in the rest of creation. So let's look at this, this paragraph 2 in the fourth chapter of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. And it says this, After God had made all creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, rendering them fit unto that life that God, to God for which they were created, being made after the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, having the law of God written in their hearts and the power to fulfill it, and yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. So my desire here is to walk through some of the phrases that we have within this, this paragraph and consider what they mean. Um, let's look at this first one we have here. After God had made all the other creatures, he created man. And there's something that is being recognized here by the framers, that in the creation narrative, God made man different than he did the rest of creation. God made man in a distinct way. Man was made out of pre-existing material. The dust of the earth was used to create Adam, and the rib of Adam was, create, was used to create Eve. So man was made out of the creation that was already in existence by God. You might not have noticed that before, but that is part of the narrative, and that is how the Lord brought man into existence, and it is a distinction in regard to man from everything else that was made. Jim Renahan makes this point. says, the creation of man is an aspect of secondary or passive creation. God used existing materials to bring Adam and Eve into existence. Everything else was made from nothing, but God used pre-existing material to create man. And so it's something distinct that we need to recognize because man is distinct in the creation narrative. Uh, man is the high point of the creation narrative and the pinnacle that God creates. Maybe that's hard for you to, to see things in that way. Maybe it's hard for you to, to ponder it in that way when you see the evils in the world, the difficulties in the world, the pain and the suffering that exists in the world. But that's not how God made the world. I know there's a great many times that someone will come forward and they will say, how can there be a God that is good and loving and kind when there is so much pain and suffering in the world, when there is so much evil in the world. And the truth is God didn't make the world with evil and pain and suffering. Man fell. Man brought sin into the world. This is a consequence of the fall. This is an absence of what should be. That's why things are 
the way that they are. And the person that even says that, why doesn't God just remove all the evil in the world? Well, first off, he is. That's part of the redemption story. He's promised that he will do that. He's in the process of doing that. The debate here is over the timing. Why doesn't he do it a little faster? Well, the person making that argument and saying, well, why doesn't God just remove all the evil from the world is not recognizing the fact that God should be removing them in the process, that they are part of the problem of the evil in the world. But natural man doesn't see that. Natural man sees the greatness of the evil, the greatness of the sin of others, not the greatness of the evil and the sin in himself. We must be a people that first and foremost look to ourselves as the problem in the world, as the problem of sin in the world, because for it's us that we can actually work with. It's our behaviors and our actions that we can actually affect and change. There's another thing that is here that, that shouldn't be controversial, and I would say for, for, for quite a while it's not been controversial, but it is now. And it says here, he created man, male, and female, Genesis 1 and verse 27. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, God created him, male and female, he created them. Now, one of the consequences of a fallen society is that they begin to disregard that which is natural, that which is normal, that which is evident throughout all of creation. And we've gone through it many times, so I won't read it again, but you see this very much communicated in the writings of Paul in Romans chapter 1 of the downward spiral of sin that man begins to worship and serve the creation rather than the creator and is destructive to man in his very natural being. He begins to deny what is clear and is evident and he begins to walk down pathways, a downward spiral that is destructive to himself and to others. Next it says this, with a reasonable and with reasonable and immortal souls. Man is made with body and soul. That's, that's how man is made. And at death, the body is separated from the soul, but you continue to exist just separated from your body. And they're, they're communicating that idea. Genesis 2 and verse 7, we see this idea, then the Lord formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. Jim Ranahan makes this point. He says, why was man the crowning glory of creation? Because God intended in a special way to reflect his greatest glory in humanity. The very purpose of their reasonable and immortal souls was to make them suitable for a life of bringing glory to God, and God made them in this way. That's the question. Why does God, why did God make man? Well, he made man for his own glory. As it says, rendering them fit unto life to God, which they were created. This is the purpose for which man was created. Man was made to live a life unto God. Man was made to glorify God. That's the purpose of your existence. The fact that we don't do that is a charge against us. That is your goal. That is your purpose. You will find the greatest joy. You will find the greatest contentment in walking in conformity to God's commands. You will find the greatest joy in bringing glory to God. When man begins to walk away from centrality of God, when man begins to walk away from glorifying God, it is destructive to him. And many things happen to man as a consequence of that. 
And Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 29 says this, says, See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought after many schemes. He's communicating this idea that God made man righteous. Adam and Eve were made righteous. There was an original righteousness that they had, and they fell from that righteousness. Now, in other places of the confession, we'll see this idea communicated that Adam and Eve had free will. Adam and Eve could freely choose good, and Adam and Eve could freely choose evil. And that's not the case with natural man when he is born. Natural man comes into this world affected by the fall. Paul talks about this in Romans 3. None is righteous, no, not one. He goes on to say no one even seeks for God. No one does. That's what Paul says. That's us naturally coming forward into the world. We are born in our trespasses and sins. We're born affected by the fall. But that's not how God made man. That's not how we came into existence originally. But look at this phrase, and we're going to spend our most, most of our time um, emphasizing this, and we'll unpack some of the themes and ideas that were brought forward previously in this paragraph as we walk through this idea. But it says this, that he was, he's being made after the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. Being made after the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. So what does it mean to be made in the image of God? What does that mean? How do we understand this, this concept of man being made in the image of God? We see this taught here in Genesis, communicated here in Genesis 126. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And I want you to think about what this means, that man was made in, in the image of God. But, but is, is man the most powerful creature that the Lord has made? Is, is, is man the, the one who has the, the greatest power? Consider the seraphim. As Isaiah was standing before the seraphim, and, and the seraphim that were there, and they were declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the, the foundations that he was on were, were shaking. These seraphim, these are these, these fiery ones. That's what's communicated in the, in the language there, these great, great creatures. It, but the scriptures don't say that the seraphim were made in the image of God. Why would God make man in his image and, and not the angels. I want to use the following illustration, and I, I've, I've ripped some of this off from a, another man named Arden Hodges, but I, I, want, I want you to think about a pet like a dog. Dogs are something that I like dogs. I've had a dog most of my life. Um, you know, they're, they're just very playful. They're loyal creatures. They're, they're very intelligent. They can be trained to do many different things. You can see some of these police dogs and fire dogs just do incredible feats. You can find dogs that will walk people around that can't even see or, or can't understand certain things. They, there's dogs that have the ability to recognize when, you know, there's a diabetic that's having some kind of an issue. Um, dogs can sniff out bombs. They're just very, very fascinating and, and incredible, incredible creatures. And so they're even called... Uh, man's best friend. The same can't be said for cats. 
Cats aren't trained the same way. Cats don't, cats don't behave uh, the same way. Um, but this is what I want you to think about. I mean, even a dog, when you, you bring home a new baby, and we've seen that before, you bring a baby into the home, you will find that dog is, is very protective of that child. You'll find that the dog actually turns his back to the child and faces toward the door. And at first you look at that, and you look at it from a human perspective, and you think, wow, that dog must hate the baby. Well, no, it's actually the opposite. The dog loves the baby. The dog's wanting to protect the baby. And the dog is turning toward the area where danger might come into the room, even though it may be a little rat terrier and can't really do anything to anyone. That little rat terrier is going to sit there and do his best to protect this newest member of the household that has come into um, the household. But I want you to, to, to think about this, um, that when, when, when the baby comes home, that baby can't do all the things your dog can do. Maybe your dog can run and fetch. Maybe your dog is a seeing eye dog. Maybe your dog has been trained as a bomb dog. Maybe there's many, many great things that your dog can do. It can sit, roll over, all kinds of things. Your baby can't do all those things. Your baby is an infant. He just, your baby just lies there. Your baby fully has to be cared for. But in any, any case, when you bring a baby home, any case we brought a child home, that child takes priority. That child is higher in the pack than that dog, and the dog realizes that very, very quickly. Even though the dog has abilities that infant doesn't have, that um, infant is very different because that infant is a, a human. I think we can see that as a, a similarity here between humans and angels. You may not have the power of angels, you may not have the ability of angels, but you were created for a purpose you were created to do something in particular that makes you distinct even from the angels, even from the great powerful angels, even from the other creatures that are in existence. There's many other creatures we could look at and say they have this ability that you don't have. That's, that's not really relevant. Um, you're distinct and you're special in this way. Um, you're distinct in that you're spiritual and you're physical. Angels are not are not are not physical but throughout the scriptures we see that humans are made in the image of God and we don't see the same thing there you see this consider even this how many times do we find in the scriptures that that you are not to make an, an idol unto the Lord you are not to make a, a visual representation of God over and over and over that command is given we take this so far as Reformed Christians that we go so far as to say you should not even be making physical representations of Jesus in his humanity. That We want to be cautious not to violate this commandment, not to make an image after God or to worship an image. That we go so far as, as, we, as we say that. But God in commanding not to make anything in the image of God has said that man was made in his, his image. We don't want to take this too far. We, we don't want to run too far in this. Uh, we, you don't worship people. Of course, these are those that are made in the image of God. No. So I want us to walk through and, and think through this concept. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? What, what exactly does that mean? Um, we, meet, we know based on what we've already seen, what we've already studied, that it means that man is in a distinct category from everything else that God 
has made. It means that man shares a unique relationship with and similarity to God in a way that nothing else in creation shares. It's, it's easy to find distortions of this doctrine. You can find those that, that take this idea, that take this doctrine, that see man made in the image of God, and they try to ascribe things to humanity that, that man does not contain, man does not have. Word of faith very much runs off with this. I've heard some of these, these men teach ideas, men and women, teach these ideas that uh, man is basically a little God. Okay, well, what do you mean by that? Do you mean he was made in the image of God? They say, well, God can do certain things, and so God can speak things into existence, and so that means you can speak things into existence, and so you would have them speaking things into existence. Um, but the fact is, the people that say that can't do that. God spoke the sun into existence. God spoke the stars into existence. He spoke the planets into existence. You can't do anything like that. Now, if you mean, as James tells us, that the words of your mouth can build things up and can tear things down, well, certainly there are consequences to your words and how you use your tongue and, and what you do. But the ability to create by merely saying something or to command the weather to change is not something that you have within your capabilities. And that's overwhelmingly obvious that those that claim that to be true have absolutely no ability whatsoever to do it. They're only speaking into existence things that can't be proven or have no evidence that their words are actually uh, affecting them. Um, but you, we, must be, we must not run the other way from this idea of made, being made in the image of God and not thoroughly consider what exactly does it mean. I, there's some scriptures that I think can help us, and I want to start with the scriptures that, that remind us of some of these ideas because there's a few of them that we have that I think give us a little insight as to what it means to be made in the image, image of God. So Colossians 3, 9 and 10 says this, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of his creator. And so we see in this renewing process right, of the sanctifying process that the Lord is doing within his people, Remember, his people are being conformed to the image of Christ, all right? Conformed to the image of Christ. So we have this idea of this conformity to Christ, this work that is happening by the Holy Spirit in the lives of the people, this, this changing, all right, this affecting of the people and making them what they should be and rather than what they shouldn't be. And within this, we have them being renewed in knowledge, renewed in a right knowledge, a, a right understanding, a right understanding of who God is, having a very direct relationship with God. And so we see this idea in regard to knowledge. The, conf the writers of the confession communicate that in the phrase that's used there. We also see it in regard to righteousness and holiness. Again, those are the words that are communicated in the confession as well. So the framers are seeking to take what's in the scriptures and, and put this forward and put these ideas forward. They're not trying to be creative with these ideas but Ephesians 4, 19 through 24 says, They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to the practice of every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus and put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires 
and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to be and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So this idea of putting on the new self and the new person that God is working within you and is changing you into is in regard to righteousness and holiness. And so something that you are to share there with God is righteousness and holiness. And that is how God originally made Adam and Eve. He made them righteous and he made them them holy. John, John Owen makes this point. He says, God made man in his own image. That is uh, re- restitute. Um, that means morally correct in behavior and thinking. That's how God originally made man, morally correct in behavior and thinking of nature as represented his righteousness and holiness in such a state and condition as had a reflection on it of his power and rule. The former was the substance of it, the latter a necessary consequent thereof. This representation, I say, of God in power and rule was not that the image of God wherein man was created, but the consequence of it. So some people will look and say, well, look, you have this idea of dominion and man's called to rule, man's called to work and keep the garden, man's called to, to you know, take dominion over, over the earth. But that's not, that's not the image of God there, but that is the consequence of it. And being made in the image of God, that's a natural consequence of it. Renahan makes this point as well. He says the, the paragraph is carefully structured to reflect this point. Dominion is not a, a constituent of image bearing, but rather the result. Image bearing is a spiritual reality in man. Okay, so we have this idea. In Genesis, it says God is made in the image of God. But then we have to consider this. Well, what about the fall? How do we understand the fall in reference to the image of God, because we have two directions that people can go, which I think are, are not the best directions necessarily. Some will say that man is no longer in the image of God because of the fall, and others will claim that the fall has absolutely no effect on man being made in the image of God. Let's start with that first idea, um, that, that man, the fall had no effect on man being made in the image of God. Let's think about that. This argument, uh, the argument could be made that the Bible never directly says that the image, that this has changed. You can't find a verse that says, well, this right here has changed. Some will make such an argument. I think you can make an argument that it has been changed. I'm going to make that argument, but they will make the argument that it has not, has not changed. But in any aspect of systematic theology, when we're understanding these truths, we, we don't we don't need to be biblicist and just look for a, a single verse that says the exact sentence that we're looking for. We are expected to pull ideas together, pull concepts together, and systematize these ideas because they all have to work as a whole. They're not like floating around all by, all by themselves. So when we understand what we've already talked about, all right, when we understand the consequences of the fall and we understand the ways in which Man has been affected spiritually. We understand the ways in which man has been affected in his thinking and his behavior. Okay, that the Bible goes so far as to say that no one is good at this point, that no one is even seeking after God. Well, when we understand, we take into account the passages that we just read, Colossians 3, Ephesians 4, and their communication, the idea that knowledge and righteousness and holiness were a part of man being made in the image of God, while well, we understand that that part's damaged. 
that, that fallen man still has an understanding of the law of God. Right? It, it's, it's there before him. Okay, but he's got a distorted understanding. And his solution for his violations of the law of God is oftentimes to diminish the law of God or think too high of his own righteousness and not really deal with his situation or his consequences. So knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness have been affected by the fall. So then that's our, our next question. If, um, if, if, if the fall had damaged man's initial condition, can we say that he is still made in the image of God? Because that's the other side of it, is to say, look, the fall affected man. He's not in the image of God anymore. I'm going to argue to you that he's, he's not an accurate image of God, but I would not say that he's not made in the image of God anymore, and I believe that the writers of Scripture would concur on this. And let's look at just a few of the places. Um, let's, let's, let's think about this in Genesis 9 and verse 6. This is at, uh, after the Noahic covenant. It says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For man, for God made man in his own image. So the fact that you should not take the life of another person, the fact that you should not kill another person wrongly, with not, without just cause, without just reason, is the fact that God is made, uh, that, that man is made in the image of God. Wow, that was almost a really, really bad heresy I said. But, but man was made in the image of God, and for that reason, it is wrong to take the life of another person. And it's, this goes further be, beyond just merely killing someone, right? To, to be disrespectful to someone, to be hateful to someone else, to have unrighteous anger toward someone else, to, to think of someone as worthless or empty-headed. Jesus takes that down and says, that is a violation of the sixth commandment. That is a violation of the commandment, do not murder. And why is that? It is because man is made in the image of God. And so that's why that restriction is given. That restriction is not given toward other, other animals in the creation, towards others that are in the creation. It's not given that way to a deer. It's not given that way to a cow. In fact, you have an entire ceremonial law which is sacrificing these animals, but human sacrifice is never allowed or tolerated in the scriptures. James says this about man being made in the image of God. It says, James 3, 8, 9, it says, no human being can tame the tongue. All right, back to that passage on the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So again, he's saying, you should not do this. You should not be using your tongue to tear people apart. You should not be using your tongue to, to uh, disrespect other people. You should not be using your tongue to curse other people because you are basically, when you're doing that, think about that. Think about wh why is that? Why, why can Jesus say that unrighteous anger towards someone is a violation of the sixth commandment? That's saying someone is empty-headed, so someone, is, someone is, is good, their brains are good for nothing. Why is it? That is a violation of the sixth commandment. Why is that? Why is that murder? Well, because when you're doing that, you're basically saying the world would be better if you didn't exist. If you weren't here, my life would be so much better. If just you weren't here doing these particular things, then the world would be so much better. Now, it's a couple steps forward to go and actually remove that person from the world. 
But that's where it begins. That's where it began with, with Cain and Abel and his jealousy toward his brother, his hatred toward his brother. It didn't just happen spontaneously out of nowhere. The Lord worked in that many times over. And, and consider this, these violations of any commandment, when someone is walking and violating the law of God, that commandment has been violated many times over in their heart and their mind before it begins to manifest itself in, in their actions. Um, we, see, we see another aspect here as well that I think is important, and we're going to unpack this a little bit more as we continue to go forward in our study, and I'll spend the next session really emphasizing um, this part here, but it says, having the law of God written on their hearts. That's another aspect of being made in the image of God. The law of God was written on their hearts. The law of God is not written on the hearts of the other creatures that, that God has made. Now, certainly, angels are going to fall into a separate category here because angels are aware of the law of God. Angels are aware of, of evil and good. Angels are aware of righteousness um, and sin. Um, but if you're comparing man to the other creatures on the earth, they, they don't have the law of God written on their heart. Now, this is one as well that has been affected. It has been damaged uh, by the fall. The way in which man understands and processes, thinks on, and follows through naturally with the law of God is distorted. But you will find in all cultures everywhere um, fences that are put up legally on areas of the law of God. And, you know, as a society continues to decline further and further in disobedience against God, further and further against their creator, um, you're going to see these, these fences being moved, but even in some of the most terrible regimes that have ever existed, some of the most terrible regimes that exist even now, you will find, at least in print, and although inconsistently followed through with, you will see um, laws in place that are, that are consistent, or at least in some way bring knowledge to man having an understanding of the law of God. Now, certainly just to tell a lie just anywhere in the society isn't, isn't necessarily a violation of the civil law within this country. But if you're in a courtroom, you see that idea. You see this idea that if I lie there, it's going to be perjury. I'm going to face consequences for doing that. There is a recognition that truth is good and lying is evil. The problem is, is that, well, we're inconsistent with how we live these things out. We're like pharisaical, like the Pharisees were. They would say, well, you, you know, I will, I will tell the truth only when I pledge on the temple or when I pledge on the gold in the temple. Then it really, really means that I mean it, right? Or if I, I, as a kid, how'd you do it? Well, I'm going to pinky swear. If we pinky swear, then I really, really have to mean it at this time. But other times I may, I may violate my word. Or if I, if I say something, but then I cross my fingers behind my back. Well, that means that I've got an out here in some way kind of see that same idea here you know as as people are being questioned by law enforcement at different times um well what, what were they under oath oh the person's under oath now it's really really serious well we've come to find out that even being under oath gets swept under the rug many times over depending on who you are and what connections you have and how powerful of a lord you have you can even get away with lying under oath but the fact is there's always wrong to lie Lying is a violation of the law of God. Other laws are easier to find. You can find laws against stealing in, in, in every single culture that is ex in existence, that has been in existence. 
You can also find um, government-sanctioned theft, where the government allows one person to take from another person that which they don't rightfully own or shouldn't be theirs. We see rules, we see laws against murder, that you should not take the life of another person. Again, in almost every culture that's ever existed, there are, there are ways in which this is not consistently followed out. Overwhelmingly, it's not consistently followed out within our culture. If you are in the womb, you are free game. A, a mother can like take the life of her child in every single state in this country. It's completely legal. There are no legal consequences that will follow that behavior. It still violates the law of God. But the fact that we do have laws in other instances that make it illegal to murder shows the fact that the law of God is still there within the heart of man. Okay, I, I made a lot of arguments there because there's a lot of people that would push the other direction on this, but Paul says this, Romans 2, 14 through 16. He says this, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written in their hearts, where their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now, now understand this. When he's talking about the law here, and that's a difficulty with Paul sometimes, when he's talking about the law, you've got to, you've got to differentiate what he's talking about. He's not saying here that the, when, when the Gentiles all right, didn't have the law of Moses and didn't have the Levitical code and, and weren't going through, you know, and then began to follow their own ceremonial system. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the moral law of God. All right. The law of God was directly given to Moses there in the Ten Commandments and then followed through giving the rest of the ceremonial and judicial law. But the Ten Commandments that were given are something that are, that are um, for all people everywhere. They weren't just for the Jewish people that were there. It's wrong for everyone, everywhere, in any place, to commit idolatry. It's wrong for anyone to use the Lord's name in vain. And we could walk down each of those commandments. All people everywhere will be held accountable for how they follow those commandments. If you violate those commandments, there is going to be a consequence for it. There is not the same consequence for all people everywhere, all right, not planting their crops and harvesting their crops in the way in which the ceremonial law commanded it. There aren't rules for all people everywhere in regard to how you trim your beard and your hair and what clothes you wear. Those are laws that were particular. Remember, we talked about that before. These are positive laws. These are in addition to the moral law, additional laws that were given. And those are laws that were for the Jewish people there at that time, not for all people everywhere. Moses didn't come down and then bring them the ceremonial law, and then someone on the other side of the world, someone in Japan, suddenly is now going to be guilty because he didn't plow his crops right, he didn't plant his crops right, or he didn't shave his beard properly. That's, that's not how that's to be understood. The Jews were to dress this way, act this way, eat this way, because they were communicating something spiritually. They were communicating something about the people of God and how they were to be distinct from the world. They were communicating something about the idea of sin and the effects of sin upon people and the hope and grace that will be there in the promised Messiah who was to come forward. But that said, all people everywhere will be held accountable to the law of God. And the fact that the law of God is written on the heart of man is something that points to the fact that man is made in the image of God because the other creatures that were made on this earth don't have that same understanding. They don't have a conscience. 
And it is so much baked into humanity. It's so much a part of being human that you can see the law of God without the scriptures. You don't need a Bible. As I've said, there's many, many cultures around the world that has, have laws, and they recognize inherently the importance of these laws, even though they follow through with them inconsistently. But you don't need the scriptures to tell you that there is a God. You don't need the scriptures to tell you that you should worship God, all right, that you are to worship God in a prescribed and particular way. Although you may not have that information given to you as to how you are to worship him, no, that's not in the creation, but the fact that there is a God who has created an orderly um, creation points to the fact that there is a God who is rightly deserving of your worship. And since he has made this creation in an orderly way, he is rightly to be worshiped in the way in which he says he is to be worshiped. And furthermore, you can see the other commandments. You can know it's wrong to steal. First and foremost, you don't want other people to steal from you. Why is it right for you to steal from someone else, but then they can't steal from you? Why is it that you will steal from your boss, but then when someone steals your car, you call the police? That's being inconsistent. You know this to be true. You know this to be God's law. And the fact that you know this, the fact that you understand this, is evidence of the fact that you were made in the image of God. I'm going to land the plane here, but we're going to come back on a couple of these ideas as we, as we go forward in the future. But it finishes this paragraph in saying, and the power to fulfill it, and yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. And that's the reality. God made man perfect and upright, but he was subject to change in his original estate. In the way in which God originally made man, he was subject to change, and, he, and he, could, he had a free will is how we understand it. There is an entire chapter in the 1689 on the topic of free will. So don't say Reformed Baptists don't believe in free will. We have an entire chapter on it, but you must understand it rightly. Adam and Eve had a will, had a free will that was not affected by sin that is not the same, is not the same as fallen man when he comes into this world. And many people have a problem with this. They say, how, how can God make people like this and they're, and they're sinful? How can God just make all these people and they can't believe upon him on their own and, and through their own volition? Man is the one that changed. God had a command. God gave his command. God is not the one that changed. God is immutable. God can't change. God's standards and God's requirements can't change. And so the standards and requirements are completely the same, but man is unable to do it at this point because he has fallen. That's not God's fault. It's not God's fault. God is not to be blamed because man fell. Instead, he is to be praised because he is God, and he is furthermore to be praised because he has given a means whereby you can be saved if you will but come to him, if you will but trust in Christ Jesus. And so we see... We see there in Genesis 3, 6, this idea communicated um, that man was made just and upright, but he had the ability to, to fall. He is, his natural estate, his natural state of existence and righteousness and holiness is, is that which could change. Um, it says this, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree would be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit and ate of it and also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he also ate. Um, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the, the pride of life. And we have all three of those communicated here. Christ will be, 
Christ will be um, one who is tempted in the garden in very similar categories. Um, and unlike Adam, he will be faithful. Unlike Adam, all right, he will stand strong. Adam stood there in the midst of the lush garden, and he was tempted, and he fell, and he ate. And, Adam, and Jesus, as the second Adam, stands there in the wilderness, fasting for 40 days. He does not eat. He does not succumb to the same categories of temptation that Adam was, was tempted in. Um, Jesus is the faithful Israel. Jesus is the, the faithful Adam. And we have something that I'm, I want to end with this, that we have in Jesus that we didn't have in Adam, even in Adam's original state of existence. Adam existed in a state of righteousness as one who was righteous and holy but had never sinned. But he had never, he had not fulfilled righteousness in walking in obedience in accordance to the law. So he, he had the idea of just, he was justified before God, like just as if he had never sinned. And we have that in Christ Jesus, just as if he had never sinned. If you're in Christ, your sins are forgiven, you have peace with God. But we have something greater in Christ Jesus. We have a, a, a if I could give it another term, if I could call it like an uber-righteousness, a greater righteousness that is greater than what we have in Adam. And that is, it's not just, just as if we had never sinned, it's just as if you had always done everything correct. And that is the righteousness of Christ that is provided for all who trust in him, all who believe upon him. Not only do you have a righteousness of a clean slate of never sinning, you have a righteousness in Christ of just as if I had always done everything right. And again, going back to God's standard, God's standard was perfection. God's standard didn't change. Adam and Eve fell. It's one little small sin. It's just a bite of a fruit. Is it that big of a deal? They broke all of God's commandments in breaking this positive command that God gave not to eat of the fruit. But God made a way that you can have life and you can have life abundantly if you will see what Christ has done. If you will see that Christ is the one who took upon himself the fullness of the consequences of sin and if you will see the ways in which Christ has kept the law in every way, it will be granted to you. It will be imputed to you as it says in Genesis, it says Abraham believed. He was believing in this promise that God gave. Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He didn't manufacture this righteousness himself through his own actions. He tried doing things on his own many times over, and he was unsuccessful. But in trusting and believing on the Messiah to come, it was credited to him as righteousness. He was saved by grace and through faith, and that is there for all who will come to Jesus and repent of their sins and trust in him.